I told you last week we're going to do something that's a little different today. Normally, we are in a book of the Bible. We're walking verse by verse through that book. And that book for us right now is Ephesians. We're in chapter 3. But we're taking a break from that. The elders thought it wise to take a break today and talk about the sacraments. The two sacraments that the church has been given by Christ to work, to uh, continue to uh, to continue on in practice until He comes. Those two sacraments are baptism and communion, or the Lord's Supper. These are the new covenant sacraments. And they are signs and seals of the covenant of grace in God's church. Each time God put forward a covenant, each time He put forward a covenant, He accompanied that covenant with at least one physical sign and seal. The work that He was doing internally he witnessed to it externally. There are two great covenants in the Bible. A covenant is a relationship established by God through His Word and guaranteed to us by His Word. That's, that's a simple definition of what a covenant is. The first great covenant was with Adam and Eve, our forefathers, the covenant of works. It's also known as the covenant of life. Our children in the catechism call it the covenant of life. Others have called it by other names. But what, it, what that covenant did was put man in a gracious relationship with God. It was not, and it could never be, that Adam could choose God. God chose Adam. God made Adam. And that exhibits God's grace. And in defining the relationship, He gave blessings and He gave a curse. The blessing was procreation, labor, the Sabbath, and marriage. Four great creational blessings. And the curse was this. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. And so, God gave a covenant relationship. That very wording, though the word covenant is not in Genesis 1 or 2, that very wording is the, is the covenant. The fact that there were blessings and cursings. The fact that God established a relationship by His own goodness with mankind. This is the sign of the covenant. What is the outward sign then of this relationship? Marriage. The first covenant, the covenant of works or the covenant of life, was sign and seal in marriage. The relationship between the man and the woman. We see it there at the end of chapter 2. Once God is done creating, He then shows Adam there is no good companion for him. And He says it's not good the man be alone. And He creates for him a woman. And the image of God is displayed through the sign and seal of marriage. Okay? And all of the blessings are gained only in marriage. Only in a family. And so, we shouldn't be alarmed or surprised when Satan attacks and divides the sign and the seal. He attacks it. Very beginning, right? He goes after Eve. And he separates her from her husband. And Adam goes along willingly in the sin against God. And so we have that covenant. God has the right at that point to kill Adam and Eve. To destroy them. Instead, 
God establishes the second great biblical covenant. And that is the covenant of grace. It's this covenant which will continue from Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation. One great covenant. It comes to us in several administrations, several dispensations. But all of them, all of the subsets belong under the covenant of grace. The sign and the seal of that covenant is the killing of an animal and the clothing of Adam and Eve in the skins. That's the, that's the sign and seal there. Now, it comes down to Noah. And you might say, well, is there a sign for that covenant? The, the, the covenant with Noah? Absolutely. There's a rainbow placed in the sky. God, in His kindness, after the flood, is reestablishes the covenant of grace with Noah. You say, reestablishes. The first time God uses the word covenant in Moses's, Moses, the first time He uses it is in Genesis chapter 6. But listen to this. There's two words for covenant in the Hebrew. One means to cut a covenant. One means to reestablish a covenant. And when he, in Genesis 6, establishes a covenant with Noah, what word does he use? He uses the word for reestablishing the covenant. Not making a new covenant, but reiterating the covenant. Noah is not receiving a new word from God. He's receiving the same word his father received, Adam. And the sign, the outward sign of the covenant with Noah is the rainbow. Why? Because God had just destroyed the world with a flood. And there would be fear. God knew that. From then on, when the clouds gathered and the rain began to fall, is God going to destroy us all again? And now we know. No, God will never destroy us with water again. Why? Because He has placed the rainbow in the sky. He has made a promise and He has given a sign and a seal of that promise. The rainbow, interestingly enough, the, the rainbow is turned like a bow and the arrow is pointed not at man but at God. The judgment that would fall if God flooded the world would fall on God. God took the covenant, He made the covenant, and He takes the consequence of that covenant. He says, if I destroy the world, if I break my covenant promise, let me die. God cannot lie. He's not a man. So we know He won't lie. And we have the surety of His Word exemplified for us in the clouds every time it rains. It's a beautiful sight. The covenant with then Abraham. Another of these administrations of the covenant of grace. And what is the sign and the outward seal of that covenant? Circumcision. Circumcision. Abraham received the same covenant, the covenant of grace, and he received it and then was given a sign. It was circumcision. That's reiterated with Moses. It's reiterated again with David. Each of them receiving this sign anew. And then we have the last great covenant, the new covenant. And what we would think we would see is that the covenant sign continues. That's maybe what we expect, but that's not what we see. We see clearly in Acts, in the detailing of the beginning of the church, the new covenant community, we see a distinguishing, a breaking from the old practice of circumcision as the sign and seal of the new covenant. We see 
rather, baptism. Baptism. And then we see that the Lord has instituted the Lord's Supper, or communion. Why would he do this? Well, we might could debate this, and many of my friends who don't stand with me on this issue, we've debated it long and hard. But I believe it's very easy to understand why we do this. When God gave the, new, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah, he said this covenant would be a lot like the old covenant, with one major distinction, and that is this, that this covenant would be written in their hearts, and that each of them would know Him, having no need to be taught by their neighbor, but they would all know God in their new hearts. And this new heart idea, this regeneration that is talked of in the New Covenant, is not a familial faith, but rather an individual faith. Each one of you will know me, and you will know me in your new heart. And so God moves away from the sign of circumcision to the sign, I believe, of baptism. Why? Because, like I said from the baptismal pool, we as credo-baptist, confessional Baptists, believe that once a man or woman has professed their faith in Christ and given evidence of that profession by publicly announcing to the world that Christ is their Lord, we believe it is right and fitting that we symbolize that outwardly through the baptism of water. So, there are many continuities between the Old and New Covenant. But there is some discontinuity. It's not all exactly the same. God is working with us a little in, in a little bit of a different way in this era. Now, with that as a backdrop, I, I think it would be good if we talked about what is baptism. What is baptism? So I want to make seven statements about baptism and show you from the Scripture why we believe what we believe. First of all, baptism is, is, baptism is immersion into water. Baptism is immersion into water. Now, um, you say, well, what's so revolutionary about that? Well, if you've been around the church long enough, you know that's not the unified position of the church. But one of the greatest evidences in my mind, that we baptize rightly, is that the word baptizo in the Greek is simply transliterated. It's brought over into English. It's spelled out in English, baptism. There was no English word, so they simply brought it over. The word baptizo does not mean to get wet. It means to be immersed, placed under. The, the definition of it, the word picture of it, comes to us from, from the idea of making pickles. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But, if you'll hang with me a minute, I think you'll understand. What is a pickle? A pickle is a cucumber, right? It's a cucumber. If you didn't know that, that's what it is. If you never saw your grandmother do this process, or your mother, you might not know that, but it is. It's a cucumber. And what happens to that cucumber is the cucumber is dunked into and kept under the solution uh, used to pickle. To, and it actually comes out 
different. Tasting different, smelling different, it's completely different. It's immersed into and it comes out different. So the word doesn't mean just simply get wet. You do that in the bathtub. The word actually means to have a substantive change. And it's used in the Bible over and over again to describe spiritual baptism, which occurs at the moment of regeneration. John the Baptist had promised, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the, with the Spirit. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. And so, John the Baptist tells us, and Jesus tells us in Acts chapter 1, that we are to expect, when we are saved, a substantive change. A new heart, the promise of the new covenant. A new person. A new creation. It happens by being immersed, held under the Spirit. Okay? So we shouldn't be surprised then when we see Philip and the, in the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch undergoes this spiritual change while in his chariot reading Isaiah. And after having the change, looks then at Philip and says, Why can I not then be baptized with water? And Philip takes him down from the chariot, puts him in the water, and baptizes him. Now I just have to ask a simple question. I don't mean to be belligerent, but if this is understood as being immersed into and completely changed, how can we best give that outward physical sign of what's taking place inwardly and spiritually? I know no better way than to place the person under the water and then bring them out of the water. Versus pouring water on them or sprinkling them with water. So, baptism is to be immersed, not just get wet, but to be immersed into the water. Our confession says, in Article 29 on baptism, the outward element to be used in the ordinance of baptism is water, in which the person is to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Immersion... Article 4, immersion, the dipping of the person in the water, is necessary for the due administration of this ordinance, the right administration of this ordinance. So our forefathers, in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chose the word immersion by dipping, to go back to that definition of what baptism is, to dip like you would dip a cucumber into the solution. So they are using the same terminology to give the defense of why we baptize the way we do. Secondly, secondly, baptism is immersion in the water. Secondly, baptism is an act of obedience to the Lord's command and follows the Lord's example. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's the command. Make disciples of all nations. What are we to do then? How do we make disciples? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. There's two things necessary for making disciples. Baptism 
and teaching. Consequently, the, the, the view of this text is that discipleship happens best, most assuredly, in the church, through baptism, and the preaching of God's Word. That's what Matthew 28, 18 through 20 assumes. The best way to disciple people is to baptize them and then have them submit to God by sitting under the preaching of His Word. Consistently, weekly, expositional, I would say, preaching. It's the best way that you can be discipled. There are other ways, but this is the best way. It's the best way. So, therefore, I don't think preaching is a fad. I don't think preaching is cultural. I think preaching is necessary for your spiritual growth. You will be hindered if you exempt yourself from the gathering of the saints and the hearing of the preaching of God's Word. So, we see that it was commanded. We see that Christ gave us an example. Matthew three thirteen through 17 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is, not, this is not a statement that Jesus needed to be righteous, but rather that Jesus needed to do all that his brothers would do. Jesus was identifying with us when he was being baptized. He was also identifying with those who came in repentance and came under the submission of God's word in the old covenant. And so Jesus is undergoing a, the same symbol, the same sign that his brothers did in humility in subjection to God and to His Word. And so, we have His command and we have His example. So, baptism is by immersion. Baptism is because Jesus commanded it and it's, it shows it follows His example. Third, baptism is a symbol. A symbol of what? Of washing or cleansing from sin. Baptism symbolically shows us that we need to be washed, that we need to be cleansed. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So when someone goes into the baptismal pool, they are outwardly professing what Jesus has done by the Spirit inwardly. They are outwardly showing the world that they needed, they needed the Holy Spirit to cleanse them. They are sinners. They are not saved by any work they did. They're saved by God's work. He saved us. He saved us. And He did that by washing us, regenerating us through the Spirit. So the water baptism is an outward sign of that. Again, it doesn't save. Baptism in water does not save. How will Jesus baptize us? By the, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But like in the Old Covenant, there is an outward sign. We could ask, we would have, if we were to ask Abraham, if he was here today, Abraham, how were you saved? He would say, I was saved because I believed God and it was counted to me as righteousness. And, I think he understood this, he circumcised my heart. That's how I'm saved. Well, then how did you let everybody else know you were saved? I was circumcised in my flesh, and I circumcised everyone in my house. 
Just He would answer just like we do. How are you saved? Andrew said it this morning, just so uh, you know. He said, didn't he? I was lost. I was a sinner. Even when I was pretending to be, or going through the motions, or following my family's faith, I was not saved. I was dead. But then Jesus made me alive. What's he saying? He washed me. He regenerated me. He cleansed me. That's how I was saved. He saved me, Andrew would say. Then, then I wanted to make that known to the world. So I did that by being baptized in water. It's a public profession. It's an outward commitment. It is a symbol of the washing and cleansing that only the Spirit can do. Fourth, baptism is a symbol of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Baptism is a symbol of the death and resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says, Now, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried... And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You might ask, how does baptism symbolize that? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's obvious by using the mode of immersion in water, we clearly symbolize this. Because Andrew was here, an old man, and he was put under the water for washing and cleansing, and then he was lifted up. Also, Andrew in his old man was here, dying with Christ. Standing in the position of a man dying at the cross with Christ. And just as Christ was buried into death, covered in it, completely immersed in it, put into the ground for three days, so Andrew was the same, done the same way this morning, in front of your eyes. And then just as Christ was raised from the dead, so He was raised this morning. Raised to new life. So baptism symbolizes. It paints a picture. So the whole world understands what is the gospel. It's that Jesus died. That Jesus was buried. And that Jesus was raised from the dead. I know no better way to symbolize that than what we did this morning. I know no better way. In in this fourth statement, I I draw on, again, that first statement. Uh, uh, article, the first article on baptism. Article 1. Baptism, this is what our forefathers wrote, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to, to be uh, to the person who is baptized. A sign, this is what it is, a sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection. What was painted for you this morning was the sign, the outward sign of what has already happened inwardly. He saved us by His death, burial, resurrection. We died with Him in His death. We were buried with Him in His burial. And we are raised with Him to new life. And that was symbolized for us this morning. Fifth, baptism is a symbol of what God has accomplished in the life of a believer. 
Romans 6, 3 through 11 says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin now if we have died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again death no longer has a dominion over him For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, this is a sign, the baptism is a sign, an outward sign of what God is doing in the life of the believer. He has given him new life. He has given us the ability to walk with him in new life. Sixth, baptism is a symbol of our entrance into the body of Christ, the church. It's a symbol of how we are brought into the body of Christ, the church. So, our forefathers wrote this. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be uh, to the person who is baptized. To be to the person who is baptized. A sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection. We covered that. Of his being engrafted into Christ. We covered that. Of remission of sins. And that person's giving up of himself to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So we have here the second article. Those who actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Only people who have professed faith should be baptized. And it is, it is that we are being brought into the church. It's an outward sign that brings us into the fellowship of the church. So, you say, I've been saved and I've been grafted into Christ. What need do I have of being baptized? You need to be joined to the church. Publicly. Publicly joined. You're privately joined. You're in your heart joined But you've made no outward declaration of your being in Christ. And so this is the way the church has for centuries brought people into the fellowship of Christ. They've done it through baptism, water baptism. Douglas Moo on the the passage I just read says that this is a, a ritual done by the cult of the church. And by that he means the group of the church. This is a ritual done by the church. That it might bring, that she might bring her members in, in a most public way. It's not a secret that you've joined the church. It's public. It is outward. It is for the whole world to know. Seventh, baptism is a public declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. Romans six twelve through thirteen says, "Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey." It's passions. Do not present your members. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So this is a public declaration. In our society, sadly, public declaration has been watered down to the point that you can walk down an aisle, sign a card, and join a church. The altar call has taken the place of baptism in many churches. And the problem with that is this. One, there is nowhere in the Bible that we have any defense for that practice. That is completely and utterly a practice that came into existence in the early 1900s. Now, did people publicly respond to Jesus? Yes, they did. They publicly responded to Jesus. But nowhere in the Bible do we see that represented by walking forward, taking Jesus by the hand, and signing a membership card. That's always represented when it is told us by, when it, what did they do publicly? Well, we know that Jesus, at least at once in his career, with his men, was baptizing in the Jordan. Now, it's not recounted over and over again, but at least once we see it. And we know that in the new church that Jesus founded on his teaching, the apostles baptized believers. I gave you the example of Philip. I also could go through Acts point by point and show you that when someone believes, they are baptized and brought into the fellowship. They always are baptized. Never do we see that them uh, walking an aisle, so to speak. Now, could, could we do that and be okay? I, I think we could if there weren't so many misconceptions involved with it. But in our society and in our church, in our culture, church culture, let's face it, even the lost world mocks the idea that your whole world changes when you walk down an aisle. The whole world mocks that. They think that's trite and silly. But I, I profess to you, and if you're an unbeliever here, you can correct me after the service if I'm wrong. I profess to you that when a man stands in water, a grown man stands in water in front of his peers and professes Christ and nothing else and denies himself and then submits himself powerlessly to someone baptizing them, I think the world still sees that and says, that's different. That's odd. I don't know what would make somebody want to do that. I would never do that. It still preaches the gospel. It still paints the picture that God intends it to paint. God still sends His blessing with it. That's why we at Grace Fellowship push for families to wait in baptizing their children. Now, I know this is controversial. I know it may be controversial for some of you. But young children can and do come into a living relationship with Jesus. They do. We believe that. We, do, we believe that there are many children in this church who, through their parents' teaching and prayers, through the teachings of the church, have believed and have been saved. But we, we ask that parents wait to baptize their children. Now, why would we do that? Well, we, um, we do this because we, we take baptism in this statement that it's entrance into the church. We take baptism as 
one of the signs and seals of the covenant. So when someone comes in to our fellowship and they are baptized, they open themselves up to public, not just public uh, benefits, but also the public rebuke and discipline of the body. So you could have a situation where your five-year-old is baptized at our church, and then your five-year-old is out of control, is exhibiting sin continually, unrepentively. And now we're in a little bit of a quandary, aren't we? That same parent who wanted that child to get baptized, I don't think wants that child brought before the whole church in public discipline. And we don't want to do that. Because children are tender. Their consciences are tender. And they're better disciplined in their homes. So what we ask is that fathers disciple their children. And at the point that the child is ready and able to not only make a public profession, but also to have the church discipline when necessary. We pray it never is necessary, but it is at times necessary. Then bring them forward to the elders. Let them make their confession. And let them be baptized. So we suggest an age, the age being 12. There's nothing magical about that age. Our forefathers in the Baptist church, as I alluded to last week, often waited till much later. As a matter of fact, many countries today in Africa, Baptist churches in Africa, still wait until 18 to 20 to baptize someone. They have to leave their father's home before they're baptized. Why? Because of the risk, the risk of what happens often in our society. A young child professes faith, and they grow up in a Christian home, and their environment is completely and utterly Christian. And they profess a faith with their mouth that is not in their heart. But it is disguised, their rebellion is disguised because of the goodness of God, the providential care of God through their parents. And then what happens? They go to college, right? I mean, sometimes it happens at 15 or 16, but ultimately they leave the house. They get old enough to live what's in their heart. And what happens? They no longer have a desire to go to church. They no longer have a desire to read their Bible. Matter of fact, they never desired it. They absolutely despised family devotion, but now they can just tell you they despised it. They're scared to tell you at 9 and 10. They're no longer afraid anymore. And now they're standing and making their own decisions. And all of a sudden, those decisions don't look anything like a submission to Jesus Christ. And what we've done by baptizing them at five is giving them an outward crutch to fall back on. To say, well, you know, I'm not living it, but, but I was baptized when I was five. If I had a dime for every time I heard that, just in the last eight years while pastoring this church and sharing the gospel in our community, I could retire if I wanted to. Literally thousands of people have, thousands of times, hundreds of people have told me that. As I work at JSU and talk with students, I hear it almost every time I go and share the gospel at JSU. They transition from talking about partying hard to their baptism experience at five as a defense of why they're Christians. And then go right back into planning their future sin and activity. And no, no thought of it. And so what we've done here, Grace, is give you, as a parent, the opportunity to disciple your children. 
to bring them up in the admonition and love of the Lord. Not to push them through the outward baptism, but to, to pray that God would inwardly baptize and circumcise your child's heart. And then, when they're ready to stand on their own feet and make a public profession, we encourage you to bring them. And if that's 12, great. If it's 18, great. And if it's 9, we're not saying we won't baptize. We're just saying we're hesitant to do it. And if you have questions about it, I would love to talk with you. Our, our, our hope and our desire is not to discourage, but to rather encourage you. That's the act of baptism. The second grace of God, the covenant of grace sign of God is communion. Communion is a sacrament of renewal, remembrance, repentance, revival, and reward. Renewal, remembrance, repentance, revival, and reward. I'll sum it up this way. It's established by Jesus in Luke twenty-two fourteen through 23. It's reestablished by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. And we're see, we see the ultimate fulfillment of it in Revelation 19 with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Communion, number one, is an outward sign of the inward inner fellowship that we have as believers with Christ through His Spirit. It's an outward sign of the public profession and the communion which we now hold to and have. Secondly, communion is a sign and a seal of the new covenant to be celebrated regularly until the Lord Jesus returns in glory. It's it's an outward sign. Again, it's a public profession. When you come forward at Grace Fellowship and take these elements and return to your seat and we take them together, you are preaching to the, to the world that you are in Christ and that Christ is coming again in glory. And this is something that will continue until He comes. Now the regularity of it is, is often talked about and debated. It's no secret to many of you that I would prefer we do it every week. But right now we do it at least once a month. And I'm okay with that too. I I think the more regular it is, the more opportunity you have to, number one, profess Christ publicly, and number two, to renew that idea of renewal and revival and reap the reward. I I think that uh, the church has never commanded a set time to do that. I mean, a set number of times. But I think the pattern of the early church, at least, was a weekly observance. At least a weekly observance, if not more. And the history of the church down through the centuries is that it was practiced weekly. Only in these last times have we moved away from it. And I think as we've moved away from weekly observance, we've lost the seriousness and the beauty of it. It's become just a tag to put at the end of a service. It's become just something that's a bother, really. Do it on the fifth Sunday night service when no one will come. That's kind of the attitude, unfortunately. But this is a serious thing. It's a beautiful thing. Third, communion is to be taken by believers only. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. And it is to be done in the local church. Because the local church has the responsibility to guard and protect this sacrament. It's not to be done by private believers in their private homes, except under the most extreme of circumstances. It's not to be done by just anyone, I don't believe. Just anyone. It is to be done in the church by the elders so they might be guarded and protected. 
Fourth, communion uh, can be held, withheld from a professing believer only in a case of excommunication. Can only be withheld in the case of excommunication. This is a serious act that brings God's judgment against the person being disciplined. His hand of discipline against them. So that they might be brought back into fellowship with Him and with the local church. If communion is withheld any other time, it is by the believer that they withhold themselves. But I would encourage you, don't do that. Except under the most extreme circumstances. Come and fellowship with the Lord at His table regularly so that you might be renewed, so that you might experience revival. Fifth, communion is the outward grace of fellowship with Christ and one another. When we take communion, we fellowship with Christ in a very real spiritual way and with one another. It is a unifying act. It is something that brings the church to Christ and to one another. And finally, the elements of the Lord's Supper most properly are wine and unleavened bread. That's that's the most proper signs. That's the signs that Christ instituted. It It is allowable, and we do here use grape juice and bread. It is not allowable to change those signs to anything other than that. It's popular in our day to dunk donuts and coffee and call it communion. But it's also blasphemous. So, the best way to have communion would be to do it with wine. It is allowable, I think. The church has argued over this. There are many who would say it's not. But I do believe it's allowable that the fruit of the vine include grape juice. But no further than that. And I believe it's most properly unleavened bread. Although I think it is allowable to use wafers of bread, I don't think that's a blasphemous act. But I do think when we begin to tread lightly, we begin to tread lightly this great act of grace when we change it to whatever we choose rather than what He chose. So this is communion. Communion is a beautiful representation of the gospel. And at the time of communion, there is the solemnness and the celebration. The celebration is emphasized in the, in the scriptures, but also the solemnness of the act. Paul tells us that there are many who are dying in his church in Corinth because they take the supper lightly. They abuse the supper. So we should be careful. Traditionally, the church has used times of communion as a warning to those who are in sin, a call for them to repent and come back into the full fellowship of the saints. Matthew eighteen fifteen through 20, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so, Jesus, in a most solemn way, explains to us how a church is to guard and care for one another's souls. It's to be done individually. When a brother or sister sins, we're to go with them, go to them, lovingly pleading with them, showing sin to them in their life, and pleading with them for repentance. If they will not hear that, if they will not respond to that, then we're to take objective, independent witnesses. We're not to load the witnesses' lips. We're not to fill their wagon full of our side of the story. So when they show up, they can join us in bashing the sinning brother. But rather, we're to take them as witnesses. They're to sit and listen to us call for repentance. Call for repentance. Explain the sin. Call for repentance. They're there to verify what's going on. And then to get, begin praying and calling themselves. If they see this as, as, a, as a sin, an unrepentant sin, they then begin the process of praying for the sinning brother and calling them to repent. The Bible says that if they will not respond to that, then it's to be told to the whole congregation. Not to gossip, not to spread rumors, not to harm anyone, but the thought here is, Jesus is telling us the only way sometimes to get an unrepentant brother or sister to repent is to put the pressure of the church on them. That the group would then pray and plead and call and love this person to repentance and reconciliation. It's all done out of love. It's all done for the sake of repentance and reconciliation. It's not done to move someone out. To kick them away, but rather to bring them, draw them close. If they won't hear the church, then they are to be excommunicated, taken from the table, removed from the list, and put outside the church. 1 Corinthians 5 says this. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that not even the pagans tolerate. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord... And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in this letter not to associate with people who claim Christ and are sexually immoral, 
Not all, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not that the inside the church whom you are to judge, God judges those who are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Jesus talks to us of discipline. How it's to be carried out. One to another. Then, if no repentance, one with two witnesses. Then, if no repentance, tell it to the church. And if there's still no repentance, then treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Paul gives us the seriousness of this by saying, you're not to disassociate with lost people, but rather disassociate with those who claim Christ and live an open life of unrepentant sin. Remove them from the table, the Lord's table. Do not fellowship with them, because the Lord, God, judges those who are outside the church. So that last statement of excommunication is a serious statement. And it's a serious move. And it should not be done lightly. The discipline of the church is, again, for the purpose of restoration and repentance. The desire of Christ is that His people would live in loving, spirit-driven unity. But when one has been baptized, takes communion, publicly professes to be a believer, but refuses to repent of sin, then the discipline of the church is required. This is not done in hatred. It's done in love. And, by the way, it's not for a small number of sins. It's for any sin that is unrepentant. Any sin. You say, any sin? Yes, gossip. Unrepented gossip that continues in the church is to be disciplined. Lying. Stealing. Unfaithfulness to your wife. Ungodly. Attitudes, rebelliousness, divisiveness, all of these things. There is no sin too small that it will not fall under the discipline publicly of the church if it is unrepented. But there is no sin so great that if repented of, will be disciplined publicly. If a man murders someone and falls in repentance on his face before God and his brothers... He's not to be disciplined by the church. He may be disciplined by the authorities of the community, but he is not to be disciplined. There's no sin so grievous that it requires public discipline. But any sin that is unrepented is to be disciplined. And so, Proverbs 27.6 is fulfilled. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I tell you, when the church tolerates sin, when it just sits by idly and lets people walk in sin, unrepentive, those are the kisses of an enemy. And they lead to death.